0: Hello everyone, this is Cameron Roberson again, and we are back for part three of my interview with Theodore Goss as we discuss uh, the modern monster. Uh, Now, as I'm sure you've seen from the previous episodes, uh, we have gone much further beyond the conception of just the monster, and certainly we're going to do that here as well for part three. Now, speaking of part three, I've been saying all along that this is going to be a three-part series. However, in editing today's episode, I realized that I have more than necessary, more than I need uh, for part, for just three parts. So instead, it will be four. And so we're going to split this up, and so I'll get one more episode um, out of this interview. So uh, yeah, there will be one more, I think, on Tuesday, and uh, won't that be fun? Uh, but for today uh, let me just tell you what you're going to be listening to what we'll be talking about we're going to start by talking about vampires and fairies uh specifically bram stoker's uh, conception of the vampire and um and in his novel and some of the other influences on him when he was writing it including a story called camilla which i had not heard of uh, maybe some of you already have that's one of the great things about doing interviews as the interviewee um i do learn Quite a bit by having these conversations uh, including the original setting for Bram Stoker's um, novel which uh, was not Transylvania it would have been a place called Styria and also we will discuss the distinction between vampires fairies and witches and the Catholic Church's fight against vampires or well I should be more specific I mean the Catholic Church's fight against belief in vampires ha, ha, ha. Uh, And we'll talk about um, fairy doctors and Lewis Carroll and George McDowell, who was a very famous storyteller during the Victorian era. And from there, we will discuss Theodora's uh, day job as a professor of writing and go from that into her process of writing, which is, you know, it's different. Um, Not everybody writes the same way. And we see, and and she's very candid about, you know, what works for her and and what doesn't. And in comparison to some of our other friends who are established writers and uh, finally we will talk about one of my favorite stories from from Theodora Samaria from the Journal of Imaginary Anthropology and all the different influences that went into into writing that story so um, let's get on with the interview this is part three of Theodora Goss and the modern monster You briefly mentioned how vampires were first fairies in Transylvania.
1: I don't think it's a matter of first, actually. What happened was I started doing research for an article on Hungarian fairies And what I realized was that we always associate vampires with Transylvania, and vampires, the idea of the vampire does in fact come from that part of the world. Uh And it really comes from the fact that you have a period of time when there are a lot of infectious diseases going around the country, but people don't have a way of explaining that. So that you would have uh, something happen. Um, A whole bunch of people in a family would die. So the question is why, you know? And and if you don't have a germ theory of diseases, your explanation is vampires. Someone from that family, the first person who died, is coming back from the dead Uh and feeding on everybody else. Which actually, in a weird way, is intuitively Accurate, right? Because someone brought disease into the family, or the disease came into the family through a particular factor, and that person ends up being the vampire. And so you have this ritual to lay the vampire, and they're very elaborate rituals. It's a way of dealing with grief. Rituals are ways, really, of dealing with human emotions Mm -hmm. in situations when things seem out of control. So, you know, even with modern medicine, we still have rituals. So you have a, a ritual to lay the vampire. So What happened was Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. Before Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, you had some association between vampires and um, Transylvania. But really, it wasn't just Transylvania. It was that entire part of the world. Mm -hmm. And the vampire story that he read that influenced him very deeply, deeply enough that he was um, originally going to sort of I think it's fair to say that Dracula was kind of going to be Carmilla too, okay. originally, uh, but I don't know if you've heard of Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu. Oh, uh, you
0: talk about it very briefly.
1: Yeah, okay, so this comes about 20 years before Dracula. Um, it's by the Irish writer Sheridan Le Fanu, of course, Conan. Um, sorry, uh, Bram Stoker was also Irish, and it's about this beautiful young girl, Carmilla, who moves in with, comes to the castle of uh, a girl named Laura mm-hmm. and ends up feeding off of her, trying to turn her into a vampire. And people kind of discover this through the course of this really rather short novel. Um, and it takes place in Styria. At the time, it would have been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Okay. Um, of course, a lot of things were at the time. But it's, uh, now it's in southern Austria. And actually, I was doing research for the book that I'm writing. It's still there. So. Oh yeah, you can still go to Styria. And someone said, oh, just take the train. Just go down to Styria. You can go see it, which would have been a lot of fun. And I didn't have time, unfortunately. My time was so strictly scheduled. But, um, but it took place in Styria, so southern Austria. And that's originally where Bram Stoker was going to set Dracula. It was going to start with Jonathan Harker going to Transylvania and meeting this beautiful girl vampire who's basically a takeoff of Carmilla. That was the first chapter that he wrote, and he ended up taking it out. You know how writers write the first chapter and then they end up dropping it and Uh going with something completely different? That's exactly what he did. The editor
0: says, no, no, that doesn't work.
1: Something like that. I think this was even before the editor got a hold of it or an editor got a hold of it. Um, Funnily enough, later on in the text, in the text we actually have, Jonathan Harker meets a beautiful blonde vampire, and he says, she reminded me of something. Well, that's because she was in the first chapter, but the first chapter didn't make it into the novel. So it's this little mistake in the novel. There are a couple mistakes that have been documented in Dracula, and it's really funny to look at them. It's like, dude, the copy editor did not look at this carefully enough. Anyway, um, but at the time, in folklore, Transylvania to the Hungarians was... Um, this land of magic and a land of fairies. It was much more associated with fairies than it was with vampires. Now,
0: was there a very clear distinction between vampires and fairies?
1: No, vampires and fairies, I think, were quite different. Fairies were usually women. Mm-hmm. Um, if, there was a, if there were two categories that really merged together, it was fairies and witches. And actually, that happened in Europe as well where you would have the head of the witches also being the fairy queen. There was not, this really clear distinction we draw between mythological figures was not as clear back then. So, and I should say mythological figures to us, Mm -hmm. right? But at the time, people were actually being burned at the stake for being fairies. Or witches. Oh, okay. <laughs> or vampires. Isn't like,
0: the distinction more clear between vampires and vampires? So just us now?
1: Well, interestingly man. enough, the Catholic Church insisted mm-hmm. that there was no such thing as vampires.
0: But witches, no problem. Witches, no problem. <laughs> Witch is,
1: witches, yeah, witches are fine. But even very early on, the Catholic Church insisted that there was no such thing as vampires. Um, it's a really interesting question as to why. I think part of the reason may have been that vampires... Disrupt the um, Christian idea of the afterlife. If you can have someone who's literally who has died and is coming back to life mm-hmm. in a way that kind of doesn't fit yeah. with your theology, Christ-like but not yeah, which of course Bram Stoker totally plays with this in Dracula, right? Because Dracula is um, a devil figure; he's a kind of anti-Christ figure. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's but but that line. Mm-hmm is really very fuzzy. He's, he does a, a lot of very weird things with religion. But the, the Catholic Church was really very emphatic about trying to stamp out a belief in um, vampires, even while at the same time, mm-hmm. in other parts of Europe, there were definitely beliefs in witches, in werewolves, in fairies. So <laughs> it was it was a very interesting time.
0: Yeah, so they really, they really kind of picked their poison. It's only that one. Everything else <laughs> no vampires. Is fair game because also maybe they're all, everyone else, the others are women, so also that's an easier target.
1: Maybe that's a good point. Um, yeah, a lot of the targets of the witch trials were women. Um, I think they were just a lot easier to explain in terms of the church's theology. I mean, they sold their souls to the devil, mm-hmm. and so it made it made sense, right within within the Christian worldview that was prevalent at the time, which is fit, and vampires were uneasy. There was this, were an uneasy fit. There was this notion almost that belief in vampires was competing with um, the prevalent theology. I don't know to what extent it may have had to do with the fact that, or, or the possibility that um, rituals to lay the vampires were not necessarily being done by priests. They were being done by sort of people from the village. Oh. I don't know. That's, it's, I, I that's haven't done place, research that's into a that. Place for more research. But, you know, the same thing happened with fairies where you would have fairy doctors and they'd be there for um, if something was happening and you believe that your wife had been stolen into the fairy hill and the woman left behind wasn't really your wife, the fairy doctor would try to (laughs) cure her. And this actually, it led to really horrific things. There was a um, case in the 19th century, really fairly late, that was brought to the court. um, And this
0: is where?
1: Ireland. Okay. And it was a husband who had, from our perspective, behaved very abusively toward his wife. And he was brought to court for this for cruelty. And he said, no, I just this isn't even my wife. My wife was taken into the fairy hill. And look, here's my legitimate fairy doctor. He told me this. And he said that if we did all these things like tie her to her bed and starve her and things like that, we would make the real wife come back out of the fairy hill. This is obviously not my wife. So, you know, these things (laughs) happened. (laughs) Who knows what they were about? Um, There was um, some mistreatment of children. That parents believe to be changelings, for mm-hmm. example. So those sorts of things are documented. Oh, what
0: a what a horrible time to be alive.
1: Well, and you know the poor. thing is, and
0: every know anything.
1: Yes. Um, on the one hand, every time is a horrible time to be alive. Um, it, I guess it
0: depends where you are. I would not want to be born any time before 1980 in the New York State area.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can all sort of look back at our lives and go, okay, 100 years ago, what would I have died from, mm. right? Like measles, potentially, or rubella or whatever. But it's definitely got a lot more problems than our time, we hope. I mean, we have different problems. We have global warming, but we don't have people being tortured because other people think they're fairies yeah, I feel like or if vampires. We, if we had
0: both of those things at the same time, I'm not sure where I would.
1: Yes, um, but interestingly enough, I read some research when I, was doing, when I was doing my own research on fairies that said that right around the time that belief in fairies disappeared and the um, stories of, of fairy abduction mm-hmm. basically went away, stories of alien abduction came into vogue. I'm sure. So basically, a- and they look very much the same. So alien ad- abduction has re- um, replaced fairy abduction
0: in the same places?
1: I doubt it's in the same places. Um, there were particular places associated... Well, I don't know. I haven't seen any research on this. I just know that, you mm-hmm. know, the the incidences yeah. You know, we see a right, light. <laughs>
0: body's taken. You don't know where you are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, okay, so actually, like, that kind of leads to my next question. So um, I think most of the stories that I've known you for are for the fairy tales mm. uh, and fairy tale-like stories. And you are... Are you an... A, a, an academic in mythopoetics, or is that a subcategory? You were an editor for, what was it like a mythopoetic um, magazine, or?
1: Oh, um, I was the folk roots editor for Realms of Fantasy. Is that okay. what you mean? I
0: think so. I've heard that term that was used a couple of times, mythopoetic. I...
1: Mythopoetic. Mm, it's a really broad term. Realms of Fantasy was a wonderful fantasy magazine that, was going very strong at the time that I started to write. And I was very, very lucky to become the Folk Roots editor taking over from Terry Windling. Um, So I got to write these wonderful articles on uh, vampires and monsters and fairies and Narnia, the mythology of Narnia, and the femme fatale, um, which was a lot of fun. And I was very, very sad when it went out of business, unfortunately, right around the time that a lot of magazines, print magazines, were folding. I think people categorize my writing a lot more than I categorize my writing. Mm -hmm. Because I sort of feel like I write a lot of different things, and I actually try to write a lot of different things. Um, I write poetry, I write essays, I write academic papers, I write um, books now, I write stories, um, and a lot of them have been fairy tales, partly because people ask me to write fairy tales. While I was at ReaderCon, I said to an editor, Everyone keeps asking me to write fairy tales. I can write other things. And I said, for example, you did an H.P. Lovecraft anthology. I can do that. I read almost every H.P. Lovecraft. I could totally give you, like, feminist, revisionary Lovecraft stuff, you know? And she was really startled. I was like, no, I read this stuff in college. Um, But I'm actually writing... For that editor now, a story mm-hmm. on Alice in Wonderland.
0: Okay. So oh, that's what all oh, the books oh, That's what my research yeah. books here. You, yeah, you guys can't see we um, oh <laughs> we changed we changed locations, everyone. Uh, magically. But yeah, she had about she has about three or four books, including books of a book of photography, uh, or yeah. photos of of um him and his family. So we're looking at a book titled Beyond Beyond the Looking Glass
1: yeah let me beyond the looking glass reflections of alice and her family here we go this one is um, lewis carroll photographer so this is it's a book of his photographs um and it's all sorts of people famous people like george MacDonald and uh, and, uh alfred lord tennyson mm-hmm. but also um, pictures of family members pictures of girls. He took a lot of pictures of young girls, um, some of them controversial. The ones in this book are not particularly controversial, but they do include Alice Liddell. And my um, story actually doesn't focus on Alice herself very much. It focuses on another girl who was a friend of his named Lily McDonald, who was the favorite daughter of George McDonald, the great fairy tale teller and, and storyteller from the Victorian era. And um, Carol knew her, or Dodgson, um, I mean in his real persona, not his pseudonym, um, but he knew her and would take her to the theater and was a good friend of hers, um, so I wanted to write a story that sort of incorporated her. Um, but the what I teach uh, is sort of all over the place, um, because really what I am primarily is a teacher of writing, so this semester I'll be teaching a class on fairy tales Mm -hmm. which is something that I've done for a while and also be teaching a class on writing fantasy called writing the fantastic uh, for undergraduates and I've taught this for graduate students and now I'll I'll actually be teaching it for like freshmen sophomores and then next semester I'm teaching a class on monsters fun yeah it should be fun (laughs) it's the modern monster and um, it's really on that time period at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, when our conception of the monster changed, and I wanna talk about why that happened. Yeah,
0: this is basically taking your research and your PhD and just pointing it at undergrads. Uh, so, so. <laughs>
1: pointing it at, <laughs> yeah, undergrads, that sounds like <laughs> I'm attacking them or something. Well, they
0: signed up for the course, so. Yeah,
1: yeah that's true.
0: Uh, so just really quick, before I go on, I want, there's more questions I had here, but so you say you're gonna teach class, two classes, one on specifically fairy tales, one on teaching writing the fantastic. Yeah. Um, is the difference between the two might have to do more with the background research or is that different process in writing you think?
1: It's gonna be different process in writing. Um, the one called Writing the Fantastic is an experimental class and I wanna to see to what extent I can merge academic writing and creative writing. So uh, for writing fairy tales, they're writing more about fairy tales even though they will have to write their own fairy tale. But it's more academic writing, it's like 70% academic writing. Uh For writing the fantastic, I want it to be more 50-50. So each week we're going to talk about some aspect of story, like the setting and character and dialogue, and they're going to have writing exercises having to do with those sorts of things. So it's almost going to be like a hybrid literature creative writing class.
0: Nice, you should be podcasting this.
1: It would be fun. I, you know, someday if this class works out, I would love to write it up as a small book mm-hmm. called "Writing the Fantastic." I think that would be a lot of fun to do
0: and a lot of fun to read. I know that you know, for for my writers, our writers, we always we have a um, we have a book club as well. Uh-huh. It usually, is about the the novels. It would be great to actually take a step back and look at the academic side, so that actually would actually function to make us as better writers rather than just writing a review of someone else's work. Which is also helpful, but.
1: I think that's act- that's absolutely true. And it's something that we do also in the MFA program I teach at, which is, um, or teach in, which is the Stone Coast MFA program. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a low residency program. And during the semester, we have um, students writing. So they're sending me packets of their writing, which I'm looking at and commenting on, but they're also reading and they're sending in. Um, not evaluations. I'm trying to think of the right word. Well,
0: critique isn't the right word.
1: It's, it's not quite. We call them annotations. Um, but really, what they're doing is saying, "Here's the, here here are the two books I read this month, and here's how I think they work as a writer. Um, here, what I think are what I think the issues are. Here's what I'm taking away from these, these books. Here's what I'm learning from them from a craft perspective.
0: Oh, I like that.
1: Yeah. Which is really helpful. And they do at least read at least two books a month and sort of deconstruct them.
0: On the similar topics, or just whatever they want within the genre.
1: It depends on what we're working on. Um, so, for example, uh, if a student wants to work on experimental literature for mm-hmm. a semester, then we try to get a lot of experimental literature as examples. If a student wants to work on writing a fairy tale novel, um, then I would say put Little Big on your reading list. Put *Lud in the Mist on your reading list. Put Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell* on your reading list. These are uh, how other people have done fairy tale novels. So okay. let's make sure that yours is really you. Let's make sure you're learning from what they're doing. Um, yeah, the, I, I did a really, really fun semester with a student once who wanted to focus on humor in um, fiction. And he wrote humorous stories and so he was reading Douglas Adams, and Jesper Ford, that sort of thing, which was a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: that's, that's also fun for you, because you don't know what you're going to get when these events yeah. are coming in.
1: Well, this is why I love teaching, because I swear, I learn more from teaching than you know than I teach the students, because I never know what they're going to give me.
0: no. No. I work with elementary school students, the same thing. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, I just, we just, for the first time ever, I was able to teach science fiction and fantasy. At the end of the year, all the the testing was done, and their ideas and their their stories were were incredible. Like, one child said that she's going to write a science fiction uh, alien story where the aliens, rather, sorry, humans have, colonized another planet, they realize that in the fox record there are intelligent aliens, so now it becomes a time travel story to go back and figure out what happened to them, see if it has any kind of impact on them. This is a fifth grader. Whoa! Yeah.
1: I'm not surprised, though, because my daughter is 12, and she's a writer. And she writes these really elaborate stories, and she illustrates them, and she's actually, her drawing is really good, because she's learned a lot from watching anime. Has
0: she tried uh, submitting the stone soup?
1: Not yet. Um, she is still in that stage where she's like, I don't even want to show it to anybody, which is fine. But yeah. she's one of these super articulate 12 year olds who is right now reading The Lord of the Rings. So. Start me young. Okay. I know, nice and nerdy. Uh, that's how we like them.
0: So they get used to the nerdness, like I'm being a like goldfish in water, in nerdy water.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Okay, okay so. Um, well, one of the reasons I want to talk about that, the mythic poetic tradition, is because yeah. um, the story, uh, one of my favorite stories from you, uh, Samaria, mm-hmm. uh, this is, I'm not sure where, where, where to put it at all, because as we were talking last time uh, about monsters, I'm thinking about the twin, and I wonder, does she fall into the monster category uh, for... Because uh, definitely, that's not, it's not a gothic tradition. It's just something completely different. But is she the monster? What, what is she in the story? I mean,
1: it is part of the gothic tradition, actually. Um, it's the tradition of the double. Okay. And so the story is influenced in part by a whole line of stories that are, um, uh, I would definitely take it back to um, Edgar Allan Poe's William Wilson. Okay. And then you have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde which is also a double story. You have um, Hans Christian Andersen, even before William Wilson, I believe. I don't know the relative dates. Um, Yeah, it's called The Shadow. Hans Christian Andersen had a fairy tale called The Shadow of a man who loses his shadow. His shadow goes off in the world and Mm -hmm. does all sorts of other things and then comes back. And then there is an Oscar Wilde fairy tale called The Fisherman and His Soul and um, the fisherman also loses his shadow, which is his soul. So this notion of the double is—it's part of the fairy tale tradition, but really more where fairy tale touches gothic. It's—it's okay. it's part of the gothic tradition more than anything else, I would say. So I wouldn't say she's a monster. I would say that she's a double, and a double is something slightly different, unless you're in Jekyll and Hyde territory, and there the double is, in fact the double does become the monster. So there's a lot that went into that story.
0: Yeah, there was a lot. I mean, this is your first time going into, guess, Middle Eastern, um, say it, aesthetic?
1: Eastern European.
0: It's still Eastern European.
1: Um, yeah, because, eh, well, it's, it's a lot of things mixed together. If you think about the countries that are close to it, uh-huh. it's actually the Crimea, which is interesting because I wrote that story before war broke out in the Crimea, you know, Um, but um, it's, if you look at where I come from, which is Hungary, Hungary was under Turkish occupation, under occupation by the Ottoman Empire for hundreds of years, Um, and so Hungary is different, It's, it's a European country. And yet there are so many influences coming in, right? Because it's, um, we think of Hungary as Eastern European. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hungary thinks of Hungary as Central European. To Hungary, that's Central Europe. That's the Hungarian perspective. Um, But there are so many things that are coming in from the East in terms of architecture, in terms of food um, and culture. So um, the summer I was in Hungary and I was in Austria. And it was very interesting to see how um, there are some fundamental similarities between Hungary and Austria. And yet there's a very different feel Mm -hmm. um, between the two countries and a very different feel between the cities where I was, which was Vienna and Budapest. Um, You can see the relationship between them. And yet they are almost like, shadow images of each other in a strange way. Um, So yeah, uh, Samaria, there are things there that I think would draw much more on a kind of Eastern aesthetic and sensibility. And uh, I was thinking about that to the extent that I think about anything when I write stories, because when I'm actually writing the story, I don't think about any of this stuff. Mm Um, but I think it was coming from, myself coming from a place that, is, that has been a kind of crossroads of culture for a thousand years, basically.
0: Yeah. Okay, so, but in the writing of that, you know, there's always things that get cut out, or details that get cut out. Are there any interesting pieces that you said, this is really, this is fun, but I just don't have a space to put it in this particular story?
1: I don't write like that weirdly enough. It's interesting because I've been, I really pay attention to how other people write because we all have our different processes. And there are people who will say, I wrote 14, I actually saw this on Twitter this morning. A friend of mine said, I wrote 1400 words today. And I was like, oh my God, how do you even do that? Because a good day for me is like 2,000 words. But I did
0: 14,000,
1: you mean? 14,000, yeah. 14,000. Okay. I was like, whoa, I would die. I think
0: that's the the, the uh, NaNoWriMo method.
1: And I can't do that, but I've also heard people who write a lot of words talk about revising intensively, intensively, intensively. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sort of the opposite. I tend to underwrite, so if I write a story, it'll start, you know, five thousand words, and then it'll end up being seven thousand because I'll realize all the places where I haven't put in all the things I needed to put in. Um, I don't usually end up cutting anything. Like uh, the novel that is coming out next summer, when I first gave it to my editor, she said, oh, I really like this. This is great. Now can you actually have the characters having emotions? And I was like, oh yeah, okay, that. (laughs) Um, Because I'd gotten the dialogue. I'd gotten the plot. But I hadn't necessarily gotten you into their heads. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's my challenge as a writer. um, That I, I tend to write, Tight, and then it the story needs to be loosened, and it needs more space to breathe, and it needs to be lengthened. Usually, um, so it's the other. I sort of do the other way around.
0: That's interesting. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear someone else. Someone does that because you know there's always the 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 pressure to continue to write, or rather to write every day, and then to at least for me, seven thousand a seven thousand word story. That's on the that's on the low end for me to try to cap, try to cut it down. Interesting. Yeah.
1: For me, it depends. Um, the story I'm writing now is about 4 thousand words now I don't think it's going to be more than another thousand words so it'll be a pretty short one like four four to five thousand words but then I've had stories where I've been like look this is going to be 9 thousand words I've had I had one that was I finally had to tell the person doing the anthology this is going to be a 12,000 word story I'm so sorry yes, I'm say, and she like how, still wanted it you know,
0: how when I mean, I mean, you're thinking of the story how much can you estimate this is gonna this is the tell the story I want to tell it's gonna take this much time it's
1: getting better i'm getting better at it i used to not be able to estimate very well but now i can feel the length of the story a lot more i mean you get better at this stuff there was another point i wanted to make which was what um oh yeah the other thing is when i write a short story now i don't start writing the story until i know what the arc of the story is so um the one i'm doing right now was more difficult because it's really experimental and sort of metafictional and I didn't know the ending before as I was starting it I wasn't sure but and which made me very uncomfortable by the way but for Samaria I knew there are a couple of things I knew when I started it I knew the arc of the story so I knew what was gonna happen mm-hmm. and I knew the whole arc so I could visualize the structure and then I could build on top of that
0: are you outlining as you go is just do your day not for a
1: short story just it over for a novel I have to but for a short story, I can usually contain the entire story in my head, which helps, which makes it easier. Novels are much, much harder. The other thing I knew when I started writing Samaria was that um, I knew that it was a story influenced by one of my favorite Borges stories, which is called Clan Ukbar Orbis Tertius. I don't know if you've read it. Nope. Okay. Borges is one of my favorite writers, which you can kind of tell if you read my stories, but... Flan is about, uh, it's a Borges story about um, an imaginary world that people have made up and it starts invading the real world. And it's a a story on the nature of reality, Mm -hmm. um, which I love and I thought, you know, I wanna write about that, but I wanna put in all of this other stuff that we think about nowadays, which are, I wanna think about colonialism I wanna think about gender. I wanna think about relationships. I wanna think about um, the the American perspective versus the foreign perspective or the, um, the perspective of this other country. Um, so I, I wrote in my notes that um, this is, it's a story that itself should function, if you hopefully should function like a shadow in that, they're like two stories and you can look at it from one perspective from a very American perspective and say oh it's about some graduate students that make up this place that becomes real Mm -hmm. and then you should be able to look at it from the other perspective which is here's a country that these you know this obnoxious group of American graduate students thought they made up that has actually been there for a thousand years the way that you know Americans sometimes think they created the rest of the world
0: I I mean it's funny I mean as I'm reading it, I, got to the, I get to the point where you can't tell, so mentally, I'm flipping back and forth. It's like one of those pictures, where once you see the double picture, you can't unsee both of them at the same time. Yeah, like so, who's the real woman? Yes, who's the real woman? The old woman or the young woman, let say. Uh, or uh, from, from the picture. Um, in the
1: picture, and in the story, is it, um, I've forgotten what I named her, um, but the, the woman who's the central character and mm-hmm. her shadow, is she the shadow? Who's the shadow? Who's real? Yeah. What really happened? And what, yeah. what,
0: what determines who's real? Basically, who's the one who gets to act in the world? Yeah. Uh, I, really, I really like that story. <laughs> and that is the end of um, part three of my interview with Theodore Goss. Uh, as you can see from the, from the end of, the, of today's interview, there is more to come, so please stick around for Part 4, which I, I promise will be uh, the, the finale episode. Um, so in the meantime, uh, please do go out and buy Theodora's book, The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, and uh, if you are writers, uh, then look for us at ReaderCon because we will definitely be there. The Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers uh, are going to be launching the Kickstarter for our second season of our podcast, uh, The Kaleidocast. You can find the Kaleidocast on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and also the website, Kaleidocast.nyc. That's K-A-L-E-I-D-O-C-A-S-T dot N-Y-C. And follow us on Twitter. Thank you.